Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Which doesn't surprise me based on how the last, like, month has gone in my life. Because Mark wanted me to teach last week. But I think it was four weeks ago I had knee surgery. Week after that, I had to go help my son with a robotics competition on, like, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Then the week after that was LADS. While just about trying to run around and get ready to leave for LADS, all of a sudden I saw a note on my phone that says, Hey, we just got an invitation to Worlds. Because at the robotics competition, the rookie team that I'm helping with that my son's on got rookie all-star, which meant they got put in a priority pool, which meant now all of a sudden we were trying to figure out how to get seven kids and a bunch of parents and a robot to Houston, which I spent Friday afternoon at LADS figuring that out, and I got back Sunday. So now, we're talking about fortifying our faith this quarter, and Mark's talked about a bunch of great stuff, and he gave me the topic of faith and science. You know, one of those nice, simple, little, concise topics that's real easy to wrap up, and we should be done by, you know, we'll probably be done in 20 or 30 minutes, and you'll know everything you ever need to know. If you can't tell, that's my sarcastic tone. My wife says it's just like my regular tone. This is one of those topics that I found myself, Mark sent me a ton of great reading material. I've enjoyed reading all of it. I wish I had a lesson. Um, Because, like so many things, the more you dig, the more you find, the more you find, the more you dig, and it can just go on and on and on. And this isn't where I thought I was going to end up doing this lesson, but Mark sent me what was basically a chapter out of a book, and I really liked it. And it talks about evolutionary pre—how do you say the word, Mark? Suppositionalism, it's so easy in your head and then you have to say it out loud. Presuppositionalism. And the more I read it, the more I loved it. And so then I read it again and I went, man, this is really good. And then I started going through it again and I went, okay, I think I want to try to do something with this. And the reason is because it touches on a whole bunch of different things. I only want to try to get through a little bit of it tonight. It's full of a bunch of great quotes that I'm going to make you listen to. Sorry. Um... But there's a lot of interesting stuff in it that I think we need to understand. And the first is that there are people that use presuppositionalism, might have slurred the middle of that, for their theology. And there's a lot of problems with that. So let's start with kind of what that is. First and most basic assertion of presuppositionalism is that one must start with the assumption that the God who has spoken in Scripture is the true God, the Christian God, therefore per presuppositionalism, three presuppositional apologetics must be taken as a basic unprovable assumption if we will arrive at a true knowledge of God. This basic postulate is a matter of choice or volition. I have a problem with that. Because it means we have to start by making a bunch of assumptions that we just have to assume is true. And I think that's false. Because as we're going to see, There are a lot of areas in science where people do exactly that. 
And then they want us to simply to assume what they said, that all, the other, all these other things happened or that they're true. And this is actually a really weak and bad form of apologetics. Um, and it's, it's not something that we're going to adhere to here. It does have some validity in the realm of debate and logic, this idea of these things, because you can kind of use it to prove a negative, but it doesn't ever form the positive. Because it's like, well... I may assume I'm standing here, and Mark may assume I'm not. How do, how do we ever prove, right? If we just say, well, it's my assumption that I am, it doesn't ever get you anywhere, Lewis. Um, it's all based on what you're going to use as those starting conditions. Um, it can be used to show false things, um, because basically you just have to kind of find the exception, right? So, for example, if somebody was kind of presupposing um, a faith-only doctrine, right? Then all I have to do to say, well, you're supposing that because you can't go show me where that comes from originally. You're saying that I have to start there. All I have to do is say, go to Acts 19 and go to the example of the sons of the priest who are running around trying to cast out demons, who ran up on some demons who said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, you I don't know. Well, what did those... What did those demons have? They had at least some level, they had a faith in Jesus. They knew who he was. They knew who his power was. They knew who Paul was even. They knew who it was that he was preaching. Yet that faith alone didn't save them, right? And so there, there can be some power to this. And we all have presuppositions, right? We all have things that we start with that we assume are true. In the state of Alabama People tend to presuppose that perhaps one football team is better than another football team, right? They can't actually prove that, except for the fact that obviously people that wear crimson shirts would be right. But there's, there's no real way to prove it just simply because that's my starting point. You, you can presuppose things only if they go all the way back to first principles. First principles are things that you can say you know are true because they have to be true. They can't contradict. They start at a place that isn't merely an opinion. Two contradictory statements can't both be true. So there are certain presuppositions, those that go all the way back to things like um, two contradictory statements can't both be true at the same time, right? That's a presupposition that I can make, but I'm not, I'm having to use that as part of, of, of well, what you could argue is one's rational powers. They're basic to human thought. And in fact, they hold, um, in some ways, they were given to us by God himself. Uh, for example, Isaiah forty-one twenty-one: Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons. In First uh, Thessalonians five twenty-one: Test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. I personally love the story of Jesus when he was 12 and he gets separated from his family. And when they found him, James, where was he? He was in the temple. And what was he doing? He was talking with the rabbis. And depending on your translation, it says they either marveled at his reasoning or they marveled at his questions. Right? He was using logic. He was using reason. What did Jesus not do, James? I'm not going to make James keep doing this. He didn't go to the temple and tell the rabbis, don't I make you feel good? 
don't you feel better just by listening to me teach? No, he's asking questions, he's using reason, and he's using logic. So it's incumbent on each human to begin to make use of his or, own, his or her own mental powers in coming to know truth, which is based upon good evidence and not merely assumptions as a starting point. Except, of course, as we said before, those, those first principles, those very basic bedrock things. So I'm supposed to be talking about faith and science. So let's start by talking about science. Um, it's one of those words we hear thrown around a lot today, right? We're supposed to follow the science. Science is going to, I don't know, save us from everything. Um, Aristotle said at the opening of metaphysics, all men by nature desire to know. The term to know in later years when, when Latin became the official language of the Western Roman Empire was called scientia. It's the word from which we get science. The modern word is derived. So in the very broadest sense of the word, science refers to a study of knowledge, how we come to know the limits of knowledge and the conditions according to which we know those things. So the word science in the original form is an incredibly broad term. It covers an awful lot of stuff. So let's, uh, let's listen to something that Winford Cordan discussed in his book. This book is intended to rehabilitate philosophy to her proper role as the handmaid of theology. So in the Middle Ages, back during the time of the Renaissance, theology was known as the hand, uh, uh, philosophy was known as the handmaid to theology. But theology, the alleged queen of the sciences, must understand that she is dependent on the handmaid. Hence, we must keep from seeing anything demeaning in philosophy in this metaphor. In fact, one could also be so bold as to say that it implies a certain amount of conceptual priority for philosophy. Here's my point. They lean on each other. Theology should not be irrational. It should not be based on a set of assumptions. It should not be something that you simply have to start with an assumption that this is true. Okay? It's something that you can study and know that it is true. However, in our time, the definition of science has changed a little bit, hasn't it? Instead, science is understood as referring to what then would have been known as the natural sciences. In fact, the National Academy of Sciences offered a definition of natural science as follows. The statements of science must invoke only natural things and processes. The statements of science are those that emerge from the application of human intelligence to data attained from observation and experimentation. A couple of gentlemen, Norman Griesler and Kirby Anderson, made a distinction between what they called origin science and operational science. And I thought this was really interesting, so I want to share it with you. In their book, they stated, it is the thesis of this book that the misunderstanding between creationists and evolutionists arises in part because of the confusion of different kinds of science. Science, as normally understood, deals with regularities, that is, with regular recurring patterns of events against which theories can be tested. Thus, 
A theory can be falsified or proven wrong if it doesn't measure up against a regular recurring pattern in nature. Usually, these regular recurring patterns are observable in the present. For example, the law of gravity. But not all science deals with regular recurring patterns in the present or in the past. Some events of significance to science are singularities. These are unique events which so far as can be ascertained happened only once or at least are not recurring. Now the science which deals with singularities, such as a single coded message from space, is obviously different from one which deals with a recurring pattern of events. In fact, such an event as a message from space demands positioning a primary intelligence cause as opposed to a secondary natural cause which is laid down for a regular occurring pattern in the events. Let me summarize that. Here's the point. If we suddenly got an encoded message from space, our first thought would not be, oh, well, how in the world did nature do this? It would be something intelligent had to have sent that. It is the proposal of this book that a science which deals with origin events does not fall within the category of empirical science which deals with observed regularities in the present. Rather, it is more like a forensic science which concentrates on unobserved singularities in the past. That is, a science about origins is a singularity science about the past. And again, to promote this distinction, in view of this, it seems evident that the creation-evolution distinction will be fruitless unless the present unequivocal use of the term science is rejected. For example, it's misleading to call macroevolution science in the same sense that microevolution is science. Microevolution is a recurring pattern in the present, whereas macroevolution involves singularities in the past. Likewise, it is unfair to claim, as evolutionists sometimes do, that creation is not science in the same sense that macroevolution is science, for both deal with unrepeated singularities of the past. Now, I get their point, and I understand their sensitivities, but clearly, we're not about to redefine science, right? But I understand their point, that there's different things that are going on here. To try to ask a system that is observe, form a hypothesis, test, and evaluate, to explain things like, where did we come from, what's the meaning of life, who or what is God, things that we can't form experiments around, it's clearly not something that that system is designed for. So clearly, while it might be more in keeping with the classical understanding of science, um, clearly this isn't accepted as the way things look at today. In fact, let's look at what um, Mortimer Alder said. Now, this guy was a longtime editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica and Great Books of the Western World series. He said, and I quote, The simple indisputable fact is that the existence of God has never been a subject of scientific inquiry. It has never been supposed that the problem of whether or not God exists can be solved by the means and methods at the disposal of the experimental or empirical natural sciences. Why not? Because the means and methods of natural science are applicable only to physical, material, or corporal objects. And God is not physical, material, or a corporal object. 
Have any of y'all ever heard of Anthony Flew? Anthony Flew was a pretty famous atheist. Um, I think you could probably argue he was the Richard Dawkins of his day. Um, interesting thing about Anthony Flew in 2004, he came to accept deism. I'm not going to say he became a New Testament Christianity, but he came to a point where he said, eh, there has to be a God of some sort. And I might point out, he announced this in 2004, that he had accepted on the basis of good evidence the fact that God existed. And he stated, my concern was not with this or that fact of chemistry or genetics, but with the fundamental questions of what it means for something to be alive and how this relates to the body of chemical and genetic facts viewed as a whole. To think at this level is to think as a philosopher. And at the risk of sounding immodest, I must say that this is properly the job of philosophers, not of science, scientists as scientists. The competencies specific to scientists give no advantage when it comes to considering the questions, just as a baseball player has no special competence on the dental benefits of a particular toothpaste. That's a pretty big distinction. To go so far as to say a scientist has no business trying to evaluate whether or not something is or isn't alive, but using only chemistry and genetics and things that we understand is no different than a baseball player trying to determine whether there's benefits in a toothpaste. Plus, I like the fact that it's a little bit funny. He further stated, science qua science cannot furnish an argument for God's existence, nor for that matter, an argument against God's existence, But the three items of evidence we have considered in this volume, the laws of nature, life with its teleological organization, and the existence of the universe can only be explained in the light of an intelligence that explains both its own existence and that of the world. Such a discovery discovery of the divine does not come through experimentation and equations, but through an understanding of the structures they unveil and map. So it's not in studying chemistry and in studying physics or in studying astronomy that we necessarily find God himself, but it is the order that we find in those things, in chemistry, in physics, in astronomy, that all of a sudden point towards that intelligent design. Those are pretty astounding words coming from someone that was basically the Richard Dawkins of his day. In fact, we're going to read a bunch more about flew, and a pretty famous debate he had in the 70s and some other arguments, which ultimately I think are what put him in the prison. Philosophically speaking, that led him to the only logical conclusion. Francis Collin, director of the Human Genome Project, said, science's domain is to explore nature. God's domain is in the spiritual world, a realm not possible to explore with the tools and language of science. Hold on. This is the person that was the director of the Human Genome Project. Science's domain is to explore nature. God's domain is in the spiritual world, a realm not possible to explore with the tools and language of science. Science is powerless to answer questions such as, 
Why did the universe come into being? What is the meaning of human existence? What happens after we die? You know, our common experience tells us quite clearly that um, poems imply a poet. Compositions require a composer. Design presupposes a designer. And programming implies a programmer. If the DNA molecule contains very complex information, only the incredibly naive and horribly biased would conclude that there's no informer responsible for that information. Especially in light of other aspects of science like physics, with things like the laws of thermodynamics that are so bold as to make statements like entropy always increases. What is entropy? Disorder or chaos. So if all of a sudden you find highly organized structures or organizations, effort and energy, as far as we know, had to go into that. Sir Peter Medawar, Nobel laureate and world-renowned zoologist, said, the existence of a limit to science is, however, made clear by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions having to do with first and last things. Questions such as, how did everything begin? What are we here for? What's the point of living? Stephen Gould, a very well-known paleontologist and evolutionary biologist, stated, science tries to document the factual character of the natural world and to develop theories that coordinate and explain these facts. Religion, on the other hand, operates in the equally important but utterly different realm of human purposes, meanings, and values, subjects that the factual domain of science may illuminate but can never resolve. Similarly, while, science, while scientists must operate within ethical principles, some specific to their practice, the validity of these principles can never be inferred from the factual discoveries of science. The validity of these principles can never be inferred from the factual discoveries of science. We talked about the... Well, we're going to talk about it here in a minute. What this all means is that science as understood today deals with natural phenomena and is completely unable to function in areas that lie lie beyond the scientific method. So what is the scientific method? You observe something in the natural world, you wonder why it happens the way it does, you form a working hypothesis, you conduct an experiment to determine whether this hypothesis has merit, and fifth, you reject it or you accept it. You may tweak it, you may do another experiment. Once you form this hypothesis, if you do it enough, and you say, hey, this seems to have merit, eventually that might evolve into a theory. Eventually, if you have enough people who do the same thing and they confirm it, and you start going, hey, this seems to be somewhat universally true, all of a sudden that may be referred to as a law. But have you noticed that it starts with an observation or a hypothesis, and then you come up with something and you try to confirm it, right? So you're always starting over here and you're going over there. You can prove it wrong, but you can kind of prove it right, but it doesn't really reduce all the way back to prove at that first principle that that's what it is. So there's always some level of uncertainty, right? You may be able to reduce it to a probability. It might be a really small probability, but it's still just that. It's a probability. Case in point. 
Newtonian physics. For a few hundred years, hey, that was it. That's all we needed. What happened in the early 1900s? Um, well, Heisenberg and a bunch of other really smart people started finding stuff that didn't seem to obey Newtonian physics. So even though we call those Newton's laws of motion, and they generally hold true in most cases, turns out they're not really the whole story. So even though they had somewhat of a predictive power, they still weren't the whole answer. And even though now, yeah, we kind of think we understand it a little better, and we call it you know, quantum mechanics to an extent, that's just how we understand it now. It never reduces all the way back. Otherwise, we'd have that wonderful equation that explains everything all the time perfectly. But we don't. So it's always looking forward, and there's always that sense of uncertainty. This means that scientific theories and scientific theories can never be known above a possibility or even a probability. Now, natural science depends on, as we said, observation, repeatability, um, which is subject to experimentation under laboratory conditions and which can yield predictions about future events of the same type. Origins that we discussed are singular events which cannot be observed, cannot be repeated, and which are not subject, consequently, to experimental testing. Furthermore, since they are singular events, there will be no possible predictability about future events of the same type because they won't occur again. Thus, based upon the normal understanding of what science is all about, the study of origins doesn't fit. So where does the study belong? Well, if it doesn't fit science, why are we spending so much time teaching it in the science classroom? You can make a pretty good argument that such studies are really in the realm of either revelation or metaphysics. And by the way, metaphysics is a philosophical study. That's entirely possible, as some have pointed out, um, for writers like Richard Dawkins and others to be inconsistent when speaking about the limits of science. They do this, though, whenever they are discussing metaphysical, i.e. beyond the physical questions, for which they have no answer in the realm of normal science. In other words, whenever Dawkins discusses questions about origins, he's not functioning as a scientist. He's functioning as a philosopher. Thus, such distinctions cannot be paraded before a governable public as science and then taught in science classrooms because, precisely because such discussions do not fit the methods and processes of the natural sciences, which is what we now mean when we say science. So let's talk a little bit about some atheists. We, we talked about Christian presuppositionalism. Easy for me to say. This is why my career in radio didn't work out, James. I can't read. That's not a word I was ever asked to read on the radio, I'm pretty sure. All right. It's common today for atheists to say that the burden of proof lies on the theist. That the theist claims to know that God exists, etc., therefore he must prove the conclusion to be true. An atheist, on the other hand, simply does not believe that there is a God, and consequently they argue they do not bear the burden of proof um, at all for their disbelief. Uh, Anthony Flew was actually one of the people back in his atheistic days that kind of put this forward. He first presented the presumption of atheism. That was one of his presuppositions, was that there is no God. 
Um, he presented this in the academic world, and it's been fashionable to suggest that one should simply assume atheist, atheist, atheism unless and until one can prove otherwise. They say atheism is simply a lack of belief in God. However, this is an affirmation. Right, Glenn? So if you're having a debate, you can say there is no God. That means you have to be able to argue that argument on both sides. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is a rather lengthy statement. It's from a man named Thomas B. Warren. He had a debate with Flew that was fairly uh, famous and really interesting. Um, so I want to I share it with you. If I could, I would just hand this out and I'd make every one of you read all 50 pages of this, <laughs> of this chapter. But uh, let me see if I can, if I can share the point here because I think it really does illustrate an atheist problem. Since no atheist can simply see by empirical experience alone that God does not exist, he must somehow set out an argument which shows that it is simply impossible for God to exist by showing that theism either implies a doctrine which is obviously false or implies or involves a logical contradiction. To illustrate the point of the atheist problem, let it be supposed that after a shipwreck, 100 people swim to the shore of an island which is 1,000 miles long and 500 miles wide. The question of the existence of mice on the island arises. Jones affirms, I know that not even one mouse is now or has ever been on this island. Smith says, I know that at least one mouse is now on this island or has at least at some time in the not too distant past. I know this because, being an expert on mice, I know that I saw fresh footprints of a mouse, fresh droppings of a mouse, and some hairs of a mouse on the beach early this morning. On the one hand, to prove his case, Jones would have to be able to see, at the same instance of time, all of every square inch of the surface of the island, and all of the cubic space of every hole and crevice and cave on the entire island of approximately 500,000 square miles to know that there is no mouse. On the other hand, to prove his case for the existence of at least one mouse or at least one time past or present, Smith would only have to find one conclusive bit of evidence of a mouse on the island. It should be noted that even if Smith could not produce any evidence of the presence of a mouse on the island. Such a failure would not warrant Jones making the claim that Jones' case was proved by Smith's failure, right? All he did was make a claim that I know they're not here with no evidence. Thousands of mice might live on the island without either Smith or Jones ever seeing any of them. Just so it is with the claim made by atheists that theists have failed to set out an argument which proves the existence of God. A claim, by the way, that uh, both the author and I emphatically deny. Does not warrant the atheist claiming that his case has been proved by the alleged failure. This means that even if the atheist could prove that every argument which has ever been advanced in an effort to prove that God really does exist is unsound, 
the atheist would not thereby prove that atheism is true. The argument of the atheist must prove that atheism involves that that excuse me. The argument of the atheist must prove that theism involves logical contradiction or something akin to this. So, we should be willing to bear the burden of proof that is mine to prove that God exists, but will the atheist counterpart step up to the plate and accept his or her responsibility as well? You know, when I was, when I was reading through this over and over, Mark, I kept thinking of the Barker debate with Kyle and how, I don't, I don't know exactly how it played out, but there's kind of a hot mic incident where Kyle had very clearly laid out the design-designer argument. I think he used the example of if you found a, a box of watch parts on the beach or something to that effect. It might have been an electric razor. I can't remember. Just finding the parts alone, um, just having the material there, you know, if you suddenly did somehow shake it long enough and often enough that it became a watch or a razor, you would still look at it and go, but somebody had to design that. Where did, where did that come from? Those parts were made quite purposefully for their individual use. And I think it was kind of one of those, well, they call them the hot mic incidents where I think it was Barker made the comment as they were starting for a break. He goes, oh, I wasn't expecting that. He was basically conceding. That's a, that's a really good point. <laughs> so I mentioned the Warren flu debate. Warren, at the beginning of the debate, set forth a really interesting, um, uh, in the first part, what he termed flu's prison. Warren said this, I want you to envision... These rooms. He had a chart that he showed, but imagine flu in the middle of a chart, and there's a bunch of concentric rooms or rings going all the way around him. He said, being made of steel and concrete with no windows and no doors. There are no holes in either the floors or the windows, and Dr. Flu is in the innermost room, and the only way he can arrive at atheism is to come through all these walls and get to the outside. I submit to you that he is in the midst of a prison that he not only cannot come through the walls, but that he, that he cannot come through any of the walls. Each of the rooms was named by a description that the audience would understand. Dr. Flew was in the innermost room. To escape, he had to go through each of the rooms surrounding his room until he made his way to freedom, um, or to give up his atheism on the way. And the rooms were this. Eternality of matter. Life from rocks and dirt. Consciousness from that which has no conscience, excuse me, conscience from that which has no conscience, I got ahead of myself, consciousness from that which has no consciousness, conscience from that which has no conscience, intelligence from that which has no intelligence, and human beings from that which was not human. Dr. Flew made absolutely no attempt to answer any of these items. And if you change the description slightly and insist that atheists merely assume or wish these things were true, but that there is no proof of such at all, let's take uh, first the concept of life from non-life. This would explain the origin 
of the first life forms. It has never been shown how this could have occurred or even that it occurred. Okay? So since nobody could prove how we got from non-life to life, you know what came next? This idea of penspermia. You know what that is, Lewis? You heard of this? Oh, well, okay, life couldn't come from non-life on Earth, so what happened was aliens from somewhere else came here and sprinkled some life around, and then all that evolved. I kid you not, I'm not making this up. Exactly. Did you read the next page? Right? So then the next logical question becomes, okay, so where did they come from and where did they get the life? Right? I mean, that's the obvious next question. So you know how they answered that? Multiverse. If we just have enough universes with enough options, you'll see that that becomes their solution for everything. If you just make the numbers so incredibly big that there's at least a chance, we'll go with that. Now, I don't know about you, but if it's me and my options are there is a God, there isn't a God, I'm pretty sure in the statistics I took and hated, Lewis, that that's called 50-50. One in billions of billions is called rounding error to a zero. At least in my mind. So that, that's exactly what they did, was they said, okay, well, we'll just make the number so incredibly big that there has to be some kind of a chance. All right. So let's focus on the incredible admissions made by some evolutionary geneticists. Um, this is a man named Richard Lowenton. He was from Harvard. Our willingness to accept scientific claims against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of his constructs. He's saying this out loud. He wrote it. Hey, I get it. Some of this is a little absurd. In spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to naturalism. It had to come from nature. It's the only thing we can accept. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Basically, if you don't understand it, you're just not smart enough to understand it. If you're uninitiated. Moreover, the materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow, and I quote, a divine foot in the door. So, evolution does an awful lot of this presuppositionalism. Okay? It does a lot of it. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a, um, 
it's, it's a new form of science. Kyle Butt has a great video online. You can find it at Apologetics Press. I forget who he actually did the series for, where he shows exactly what you're talking about. And he uses the example of, let's assume you find an apple in a yard that's had a bite taken out of it. And you ask someone to come in who's a forensic expert to look at this apple and say, hey, um, you can come up with any answer for what took the bite out of that answer, out of that apple, except it being the human who owns the tree. Okay? So what's going to happen? They're going to examine it. They're going to look at it. They're going to go, yeah, those kind of look like marks of something. Yeah, it matches the owner, but it could have been some other animal. They're going to go, ooh, the saliva's here. Saliva has DNA in it, matches the owner. But, you know, there's other ways maybe that got there. You know, um, maybe whatever bit the apple, I don't know, maybe it was the dog and he had licked the plate of the owner first and somehow that's how it got. You see what I'm talking about? They're, they're crazy stories that don't make any sense, but because you've been told it can't be the owner of the tree went and took a bite out of the apple, that's the one you're forced to use. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's been hijacked, and it's a point where it's no longer logical with the way that it's being followed. I want to cover at least this much before we run out of time. Evolutionists simply assume that evolution is true. And I want to go over a bunch of assumptions that evolutionists have to make before they can even get started. So let me start with uh, a gentleman named uh, Kirkuk. Uh, he's a well-known, uh, he wrote this uh, well-known book called Implications of Evolution. The book's a little dated, um, but as far as I know, there's nothing here that contradicts this. There are seven basic assumptions that are often not mentioned during discussions of evolution. Many evolutionists ignore the first six assumptions and only consider the seventh. They are as follows. One. The first assumption is that non-living things gave rise to living things, i.e. spontaneous generation occurred. They simply assume it, they don't question it, they move on from there. Two, the second assumption is that spontaneous generation occurred only once. The other assumptions all flow from the second one. The third assumption is that viruses, bacteria, plants, and animals are all interrelated. Fourth, Protozoa gave rise to metazoa. No difference between those? Protozoa are single-cell organisms. Metazoa are multi-celled organisms. The fifth assumption is that the various invertebrate, um, invertebrate phalia are interrelated. The sixth assumption is that invertebrates gave rise to vertebrates. And the seventh, this is the one you will actually hear and talk about a little bit. The seventh assumption is that within the vertebrates, the fish gave rise to the amphibians, the amphibians gave rise to the reptiles, the reptiles gave rise to the birds and mammals. Sometimes this is expressed in other words, i.e., the modern amphibian and reptile had a common ancestral stock, and, and so on. Then he honestly confesses, for the initial purposes of this discussion on evolution, I shall consider that the supporters of the theory of evolution, and Kirk was one of their very avid proponents, hold that all these seven assumptions are valid and that these assumptions form the general theory of evolution. The first point I should like to make is that these seven assumptions, by their very nature, are not capable of experimental verification. They assume that the certain series of events has occurred in the past. Did you hear that? These are assumptions 
They form a theory. They cannot be verified. They occurred in the past. These are the seven tenets of a belief system. These are the seven commandments of evolution that we would be looked down upon for saying, hey, we believe these and we have rational reasons and go explain why. These are their seven commandments. These all had to happen or everything else falls apart. My point being, and what I wanted you to get out of this lesson, because I'm about to run out of time, so I'm probably going to have to kind of stop here, is you don't hold the whole burden of proof that God exists. There's nothing wrong with asking someone who's challenging you to go prove to me he doesn't, because that works both ways. And second, things that are being thrown at you every day as science are based on far shakier ground and questionable logic than what your faith should be based on and can be based on. Here's the difference. We, we're going to get there. It's the whole, all the stuff that Mark's been talking about, things we're going to talk about in the rest of this class. We have a better position than this. This is all they have. They have no option but to start with this. And we'll pick up there next week. Unless Mark says that was horrible, you're done. Thanks for your attention. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.com dot org.